the leadership of Rock Hills tried to get together and decide, as we looked at our faith community, what characterized our personality and our passions and how we might express our faith into the city of San Antonio. And what we decided was this, this idea, this, this uh, approach called one-on-one best captured who we are. And today, my message is inviting someone, inviting people into a relationship with God. Now, Tim came across a video this week, and if we had seen this video six months ago, we could have done away with the whole one-on-one series because it has some of the most creative ways of sharing our faith. We wouldn't need to go through all this. So all we need to do is watch this, and I think people all over San Antonio are going to get saved and, and make faith commitments to Jesus. So let's, let's play the video. All right, so maybe not, okay? So maybe we do need one-on-one. And as you see those cards, what we, the, the reason we develop those cards is because we understand the tension that this guy's feeling. He wants to share his faith, but at some level, we all understand if we do it awkwardly or we do it in a way that's offensive, it will actually push people away from Jesus and it will actually do more harm than good. And so the, the, the card, first of all, encourages you to connect with God, okay? Get connected with God. You do that by reading scripture, by listening to him, by spending time with him, spending time in his word, uh, putting aside intentional time with God, those kinds of things. Then when you're connected with God and, and can hear his promptings and his spirit, then you start praying for someone. And then you try to spend some intentional time with them and you try to lead a conversation into intentional conversations. And so we do all those things and they culminate, we hope, and at some point you'll have the opportunity to invite someone into a relationship with God. And now the question becomes, how do we do that? And, and as I was reflecting on that issue, I realized that, that God brought to mind a scripture in Acts chapter 8. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Acts chapter 8, and we'll take a look at that together. And this is an amazing event. Uh, it's written by Dr. Luke. Chapter 8, or all of Acts is written by Dr. Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, we learn right in the beginning that Luke is a doctor, he was a Gentile, he wasn't a Jew, and he's very interested in fact. He's an empirical, objective kind of guy. So in in the Gospel of Luke, he says, I did intensive research to find out what is true and what is factual. And so we know this account, because Luke also wrote Acts, we know this account actually happened. It is a true, factual event. And it goes something like this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, now this is not the apostle Philip, This is uh, another, just an ordinary believer, someone in the church of Jerusalem, okay? And Philip has has gotten uh, out of Jerusalem because this guy named Saul, who later gets converted to Paul, has persecuted folks, and they have scattered around all of Israel. And so uh, uh, Philip is moving around, and he gets prompted by God here. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. First thing I notice here is, you know, we think if we're going to share our faith, we ought to go like to downtown San Antonio, right? Set up a soapbox and stand there and scream at people so you have a big crowd. He was listening to the prompting of God, and he went out into the desert. He must have wondered, well, who's going to be there? And this is what he found out. He started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting on his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. 
the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, don't miss that. Stay near it. That chariot was moving, folks. I mean, this isn't, you know, don't think of Ben-Hur and chariot races. Think of a chariot like an old carriage. It was going a long way, so the horse was probably in a slow walk. And the Spirit of God said, run alongside it and start talking to this guy. The equivalent would be maybe being in 281 and bumper-to-bumper traffic and, and like, walking along or or jogging along trying to share your faith. And and trust me, that is not a point of this sermon. That is not a takeaway from this message, okay? In Texas, we have a thing called concealed handgun license. You do that, you might get three 9-millimeter rounds in the chest, so, so don't do that, okay? But that's what Philip is doing. He's going along with this chariot. He ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading... Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And a couple of verses later, they're coming along and they see some water and the eunuch says, baptize me. So we know that that Philip was following Jesus' uh, great commission, that you should share your faith and then baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing encounter on a road in a chariot. Now, what can we learn from this? And I think there's three things I want to talk about today from this passage. One, we see he was prompted by the Spirit of God. And and we see that right at the beginning, that an angel of the Lord spoke to him and moved in Philip to go to the desert. And then again, it says, a spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit told Philip to go up to the chariot. So we have the prompting of God. That's the first point we need to take notice. You see, we can go off in our own strength and our, our, our own agendas and try to share their faith. I did that. I became a Christian when I was 37 years old, and I figured, I'm a lawyer, right? I'm a trial lawyer. My whole job description is persuade juries and persuade people. I can talk anybody into the kingdom, right? So I'm sharing my faith all over the place, offending people left and right, Actually, occasionally, now and then, someone put their faith in in Christ, but I I know I did a lot more harm than good. And it was very hard on my self-esteem. I thought I was convincing, and yet I was being rejected more and more often. And then I came across a verse, John 6, 44, and I think we have that verse here. Now, you have to remember that Jesus was God himself. So he's the most intelligent man who ever walked the face of the earth, and he's the most persuasive man that ever walked the face of the earth. You would think Jesus would say, I can talk anybody into the kingdom. And what does he say in this verse? No one can come to me unless the Father in heaven draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see, even Jesus can't talk somebody into the kingdom unless God happens to be drawing them. So the question becomes, how do we know when we're being prompted to share our faith? You know, It begins with this angel telling uh, Philip what to do, and then the spirit telling him what to do. I've never been talked to by an angel, okay? I'm not sure when I'm prompted to speak by the spirit, except there's one time I I usually am. I usually drive the car. 
Occasionally, Jan will drive. When I'm sitting in that passenger seat, I hear the Spirit of the Lord prompting me so often to share with her the perfect speed to go, which lane she ought to be in in order to, to, to make the best speed, which direction you know, to go and how to get to the place we're trying to go to. And over and over, the, the Lord just speaks so directly to me. Okay. You know, it's actually just the opposite, isn't it? I mean, when I'm talking in that situation, that is my compulsive need for control, my arrogance, and my insensitivity. So when that's going on, you know that's not the Spirit of God. So how can we hear the Spirit? It's interesting, the, uh, the ladies had a ladies' event uh, for the Elevate Bible study. And if, ladies, if you haven't checked that out, you need to do it. Marion Jordan Ellis is just an amazing teacher. And they're having it at our house this Thursday night. So I go over to my friend Art Lopez's house. Many of you know Art. And we're talking, and, and this message is on my mind. And I said, Art, how do you hear the Spirit? How, how do you know when you're being prompted by the Spirit? And he thought for a minute, and he said, you know, Al, I'm not exactly sure all the time, but what I realize is this. The more I'm in the Word of God and, and learning to hear His voice in His Word, the more I recognize His voice in my life. I'm thinking, wow, that'll preach, man. Good, good job, Art. It's like that it was just such a great insight. And I realize that that is so true. The more we're in the Bible, the more we, we get in tune with God's heart. We see what he's passionate about. We see what God cares about. We see his principles for life. We see how he would have us live. And when we hear that more often, then when that still small voice speaks to us, we recognize it much more clearly. The second way I can think of that we prompted happened Thursday night. We are prompted by other believers. You see, the Holy Spirit lives within Art Lopez. He's a believer in Christ. And so one of the ways we can hear the Spirit is through other members of our faith community. And that's really the reason why I'm so passionate about being here every week whenever I'm in town. It's because, it's, it's not because I think it's a sin to miss, but I want to know God. I want to hear God more fully, and I hear him so often through other people in this room. So as you're trying to hear the Spirit of God, spend more time in his word, and spend more time with other believers. The second thing we see in this passage is that Philip was prompted to action. In verse 30, he says, he ran up to the chariot, right? Now, God can do anything. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God could have had Philip, or excuse me, the eunuch, turn and make a 90-degree turn toward Philip and say, hey, I don't know why, but I think I'm supposed to talk to you. God could have done that. Why didn't he? I think the reason is that there's something about taking action that communicates love. You know, when, when I take the time to, to contact someone, to initiate with them, to, to listen to them, to ask them questions. I think they begin to understand I care about them, that somehow love is communicated. And maybe the, one of the greatest teachers in the history of, our, of mankind is Socrates. And Socrates says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So when you finally show someone that you care about them by taking action, by initiating, then you're much more likely to have an impact on them. I hired a young lawyer about four months ago, David. Uh, he's 37 years old. He's got three kids. Good young man, but he's not connected to God. And he's, he's one of the people I'm praying for in one-on-one. -on -one. 
And, and what I'm doing is I'm trying to spend intentional time with him. I, I'm very busy when I go to Houston, but I take time to go into his office and speak with him. When I go downstairs to the deli, I'll prop my head in and say, is there anything I can get you? I'm going downstairs to the deli. I, I take him to lunch. And over the last four months, I've seen him start to ask questions. He, he knows about my faith. He knows that Jane and I you know, enjoy mentoring married couples. He's starting to ask me questions about his marriage and, and, and parenting and other things. And I can see this relationship growing. I don't know where it's going to end up, but I want you to understand, David is not a project. He's not, he's not someone I'm looking to put a notch in my belt. I care about David Swift. I really do. And because I care, I'm making time to spend with him. And so I think people will understand that. Philip took action, and I think that communicating something really powerful to the eunuch. The third thing I see here is that he shared his, uh, the good news with Philip. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please who the prophet is. In verse 35, Philip began with a very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And I think what he was doing was he was actually starting three verses before. Most commentators believe that one of the clearest indications of Scripture, uh, of the good news in the Old Testament, is in Isaiah 53. If you've never read Isaiah 53, it is a detailed, detailed prophetic description of Jesus and his crucifixion. And it's, I would love to teach on that some, some Sunday. We don't have time today. But this is what that passage says, beginning at verse 4. And by the way, I had a Jewish friend named David, and we used to kid ourselves about our faith and try to talk each other about things. And one day I read these three verses to him. Just imagine if you'd never heard of these. And this is what I did. I said, David, listen to this. Who am I talking about? Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own ways. And the Lord has laid on him his iniqu- the iniquity of us all. He looked at me and said, Al, I'm not stupid. I know it's talking about your Jesus. I said, yeah, you're exactly right. And that's in your book of Isaiah, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And he was kind of shaken, and then he went and talked to his rabbi, and I think his rabbi gave him an alternative explanation. But I think any you know, sincere person reading that would recognize it's about Jesus. And that's what Philip shared, and so the eunuch placed his faith in Christ. And we see in that last verse the good news of the gospel. And here's the gospel, simply put, folks. Our rebellion, our, have, our going astray, as Isaiah puts it, has caused us to be our relationship with God to be broken. There's a, there's a penalty due for violating the perfect justice of God. And that penalty is so large that no human being can pay it. No human being could be good enough to pay it. And so Jesus paid the price to make us right with God. And if you put your faith in that truth, then you too are reconciled to God. If you've never done that, I pray you will do that. As the, as the eunuch did and, and w- was baptized. You know, the big problem in the 20th century and 21st century is that people, and, and as I've shared my faith so often, people say, well, bottom line is, I don't think I've any, done anything all that bad. And that is a difficult thing, a difficult hurdle to get over. People think 
that they don't deserve separation from God. And they, I guess they do in some general way. And, and, and so we have a few pictures here, and I, I'm just wondering, maybe you, know, maybe you, you are that way too. What about this guy? What about, um, I think people, most people would say, well, yeah, I guess he deserves separation from God. Murdered seven million Jews and, and did so many horrible other horrible things. I guess he deserves separation from God. Well, what about this guy? Saddam Hussein. He only murdered apparently about a million Iraqis. Gassed some Kurds. Does, does he deserve separation from God? What about this guy? Osama bin Laden. He apparently didn't personally kill anybody. Now, he designed a plot that, that murdered 3,000 people, but, but does he deserve separation? I think most people would start to say, well, yeah, I guess so. What about this guy? Now, I mean, he's kind of cute. He's sort of cuddly. And, and anybody that likes dogs, I mean, how can they be that bad, right? Folks, the truth of the matter is, if you took my worst moments from this past year, my darkest moments of anger and bitterness and arrogance, and hatred, and lust, and we're, we're able to project them on the screen, I think you would all agree that I do deserve the punishment of God. And I know that I do. I know I'm not good enough to be with God that I need a Savior. But what about this guy? By all accounts, maybe one of the godliest men in U.S. history. He himself says, I do not deserve to be with God because of my sin and, and because of the evil that's in me. And I need a Savior, Jesus. And what about this woman? Mother Teresa. We could go on and on, but I think you get my point. Who is bad enough? And here's the answer that Jesus gives. The answer that Jesus gives is we don't have sort of a world problem. We have a human heart problem. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know what? If you've ever been angry, that's like killing someone. Let's show a picture of anger, okay? Okay. Have you ever been angry? You know what causes all the wars, all the evil, all the hatred, all the murder in this world? Jesus says it is the outflow of billions and billions of human hearts with anger just like that. What about greed? You ever been greedy? You know, there's, there's people starving to death. There's, there's need on a, on a level we can't even comprehend. Have you ever been greedy? And what Jesus would say is that all the problems of starvation and other things in this world are caused by the greed of billions of people in their human heart. And you can say the same thing about lust. You know, what some of the most despicable things in this world are the sex trade and, and, and selling people into human slavery and, and things of that nature. And what Jesus would say is that begins in every individual human heart. And when you put billions and billions of human hearts with that kind of lust in the world, we have a sick and evil world. And so, folks, those are my three points for, for inviting people in a relationship with Christ. Number one, you need to be active. Number two, prompted by the Spirit. And number three, share the good news. You know, this is, I want to leave you, I want to leave you with, with some hope and, and some freedom, I think. Don't feel like, if I don't share my faith, I'm a bad person. Don't worry about it. I promise you, God is not up there wringing his hands saying, 
Oh, what if Al doesn't share his faith with this person? God is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He can draw people to Jesus any way he likes. But what would you rather do with your life? I mean, really grinding it out at the job every day, is that all there is? Some of the most satisfying moments I've ever had are down in Honduras when we're putting in a water project and having this huge impact in a village and seeing people drawn to Jesus or just simple acts of service and simple acts of sharing my faith. And I just want, I just want to put that vision out there. Don't do this because it's, it's another thing you have to check off your checklist or, or to be a good rock killer you have to do this. That's not the point. I'm saying do this because it will make your life satisfying and joyful. And I saw this again a few years back when I went to Jan's 20th high school reunion. And I won't tell you what year that was, because if I told you what year her 20th high school reunion was, you could figure out how old Jan is, and I would never give up my wife's age. So I won't tell you the exact year. I'll just give you the last two digits. It was 94, okay? <laughs> and, and back in 94, when we were at her 20th reunion, we met some amazing people, and I met this guy that I was really drawn to, and his name was Rick Town. And he had this incredible family. He had four kids. He was active in his church. He was this mature Christian. And I'd only been a Christian for a couple of years. And I was really drawn to his life. He was married to his high school sweetheart. Just everything that I wanted to be, I could see in Rick Town. So I asked him for a story. I said, how was it that you became a Christian? He said, it's a pretty amazing story. He said, I was in, in eighth and ninth grade, and I, I fell in with, with a bad crowd. And in ninth grade... We were starting to do some petty theft and burglary. We were doing a lot of drugs. And it was the summer before 10th grade. And we were all out playing basketball. And me and five of my buddies, and these two guys walked up. And they were college guys at the University of New Mexico there in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And they said, can we play with you? And, and, play with you. and, they, and we did. They, we let them play with us. And, and they played, and they were great. They kicked our tail. He said, but when they were done and we were all about to disperse, they said, wait a minute, guys, we've got something we want to share with you. And they shared that they were Christians. And they said, you know, guys, all of you are going to die someday. And the question is, where are you going to be when you die? And if you want to know the answer to that, just come on back. I, I know you probably don't, you're, anybody have any questions? And none of us did. We we're all kind of nervous. And he said, well, here's, here's the deal. We will stay at this playground for another hour. If any of you has any questions... Just after your friends go, come on back, and we'll talk to you. And Rick Town said, I waited about half an hour, and then I walked back, and sure enough, they were still there, along with one of my other buddies. Two of us responded, and they just, in a loving way, shared their faith with us and began to meet with us and teach us from the Bible. And, and that year, we got involved with some Christian guys at our high school. And I said, wow, Rick, that's an amazing story. He said, yeah. And I said, who were those guys? He said, you know... Somehow, I was so young, I lost, I lost their names, and, and I would give anything. He says, at least once a month, I think of those guys, and I wish I could tell them thank you. And then he said, everything I have is because of them. My wife, my four great kids, everything, my business. He said, because those two guys took the time to play basketball with us and share the truth of Christ, my life was changed. I don't know about you folks, but that's what I want when, when my time comes, and it may be today, it may be 20 years from now, but when my time comes, I'm not going to look to my money or, or my law firm or anything else for what made my life satisfying. It's going to be those moments 
where you might make an eternal difference in someone's destiny. Let's pray.